what you could call a dream or maybe a, a nightmare. <laughs> and the, the dream was this morning, right here at this moment, and uh, none of you were here. Um, but the place was full, but it was full of all of these different cult groups. And um, I was up here standing, and I couldn't get my iPad to work. We couldn't get the projection system to work. I couldn't see my sermon notes or the the biblical passage. And so what started happening, uh, and in the midst of that, I won't get into details, but I I wasn't dressed appropriately, okay? (laughs) So I felt like an, 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 an immense fool, And uh, then these groups just started popping up in random songs and many sermons, and it was just completely out of control. And I was just standing here, I was thinking, okay, this has got to be a dream, this has got to be a dream, this has got to be a dream. And thankfully I woke up, and it was, but it really did not feel like it. Um, But the, the themes of the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and foolishness, uh, actually have a, 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 a biblical precedent of, of being together. I want to read just real quick Paul's uh, statement here from 1 Corinthians. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom or learning and philosophy. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So we see here in the the message of the gospel, um, the revealing of the power and the wisdom in the foolishness of God. And we're going to see that the revealing of God's power and wisdom ultimately reveals our own foolishness. So what I want to look at today are three things. The foolishness of God in the story of Jesus. There's a lot of what we would consider or humanity would consider foolish here on this April Fool's Day. And I also want to look at the wisdom then and the power of God in the story of Jesus. So the story of Jesus shows God's foolishness, and it shows his power, and it shows his wisdom, especially above the wisdom and the power of humanity. And then I want to look at the challenge of Easter to our own foolishness. So the foolishness of God in the story of Jesus. So I'm going to be basing most of the the work out of the gospel of Mark today. Um, it's, the gospel of Mark is unique. It's, kinda, it was, it's considered to be the first of the four gospels, and the gospel uh, that Matthew and Luke used to kind of form the, the framework or structure of their gospels. And it is just a blast through all of the critical and important events in, in the life of Jesus Christ. It doesn't spend a lot of time elaborating uh, going into deeper theology and scriptural references like Matthew and Mark do. It is just going through uh, the life of Jesus Christ, showing how, uh, showing his identity. And so really what I want to talk about is the development of, of who Jesus was 
in, in the Gospel of Mark. And you see three types of statements that people make about Jesus. There are confident assertions, there are guesses, and then there are questions. Confident assertions, guesses, and questions. And so the confident assertions, those either be like statements where uh, Jesus is the Son of God, or Jesus is the Christ, or this is my Son. All of the confident assertions that you see in Mark's gospel are coming from what I would consider uh, strange or dismissible sources. So the first confident assertion we have about Jesus is from a voice in the sky. He doesn't say it's God the Father. He just says, a voice from the heavens declared, this is my son. This is my son. We see that twice, a voice from the heavens. We see a blind man. And so throughout the Gospels, you you have these individuals that come across as prominent members of society They're the ones with all the questions. They're the ones with all the insecurities. And then you come across people that humanity would consider in their weakest states, blind people, sick people, lame people. And so the blind man, the blind man who can't see in terms of the human reality, can see in heavenly reality the same thing that the voice from heaven saw. He called him the son of David the son of David, which is a reference to the promised child that David would have somewhere along the line of his descendants, a son who would rise to be the king not only of Israel, but of all nations and rule the world in peace. And so a blind man makes this competent assertion. You have guesses. You have guesses from the crowds. You have guesses from the ruling officials. Guesses like, is he Elijah? Is he the prophet? Because Moses said in Deuteronomy that a prophet would come like me, but that you would listen to him. In contrast to me, because you didn't really listen to me very well, Moses says. You'll listen to this prophet. He's going to come. And at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, which closes off the, the law, the first five books of the Bible, the five books of Moses, it's tacked on towards the end, somewhere hundreds of years beyond the events in the book of Deuteronomy. It says, hey, no prophet has come along yet. No prophet has come like Moses. So they're wondering, hey, is Jesus this prophet? The high priest asks him, are you the son of the blessed? Are you the, are you the Christ? Are you the son of God? So you have all these people asking questions and making guesses they call him the teacher they call him the carpenter they call him rabbi some ask are you the king of the jews Pilate asks him that in somewhat of a sarcastic and cynical fashion and so you have all of these various statements throughout the entire gospel of mark that are that are throwing out options as to this the identity of this person Now, Mark is assuming that the reader is familiar with the story about Jesus. He's he's assuming that the readers um, have some knowledge of Jesus, and what he's trying to do is is show um, in a historical way, in a factual way based upon eyewitness accounts, how, how Jesus came to be 
understood as the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel, the King of the Jews, and King of the world. And so he starts out his gospel, and he says, this is, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A gospel back in that time does not mean what it means today. We, see, we, we hear the word gospel, we think it's one of the four books in the beginning of the New Testament, or we, we think of it as the content of the proclamation about Jesus. A gospel back then was a word that was used when there was a, a, a bringing of any good news that was going to affect positively a lot of people. And so the birth of a baby was a gospel, okay? Uh, the, the announcement of a marriage was a gospel. And in particular, the announcement of a new ruler or a new king who would bring a, a world of prosperity to the nation uh, was a gospel. And so John, uh, excuse me, Mark starts out, this is the beginning of the gospel. So the declaration the announcement, this is the beginning. My book is the, is, the, is the, this is how it begins. This is how the good news of Jesus coming as ruler begins. And so he starts right out saying, uh, Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel, and then explains throughout the gospel how he got to that point. And so there's a lot of, ins- there's a lot of unsurety, and so you can see, as a reader, you may be in a place of saying, I do believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Messiah. And now I see how Jesus and the events surrounding Jesus affirmed that. But you could be reading the Gospel of Mark or any of the Gospels and say, you know what, I I feel like I would be one of these lookers-on, one of these audience members, one of these people. Who is this guy? Who is this guy? Some say he's this, some say he's that. Some have asked him questions. He doesn't answer very directly. He speaks in parables and strange sayings, but he's healing and helping a lot of people, especially those where, who's, who have been the victims of a lot of injustice. And then there are the statements that Jesus makes himself about himself. And consistently... And this is pretty much the only way Jesus refers to himself in the Gospel of Mark. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. And he is referring, he, he is, he's using an image out of the book of Daniel to give him, to give his audience a sense of who he is based upon the prophetic imagery of the prophets. And let me read this passage here out of Daniel. It's an incredible passage. And so Daniel is describing some visions that he has received from God. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And so it's basically just, I saw somebody that looked like a human being. And he came to the ancient of days, that is the eternal God, and was presented before him. And to him, this son of man, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so you can see here that, I mean, this seems like a fairy tale. There's gonna, a king is going to come and we're all going to live happily ever after. Globally, worldwide, 
under this king. That, that seems like what it is. But in, in, in our day, we are so used to um, everybody kind of expecting everyone else to have their own vision okay, of truth, their own vision of what spirituality is, their own vision of who God is, their own worldview in terms of how they serve it. But, but there was a, a greater respect for the concept of truth back then. And, and people really believed these things, and they expected others to believe these things as well. And so you wouldn't, you, if you were a Jew, you wouldn't consider this to be something that somebody was just posturing as a fairy tale idea that helped them cope with the troubles of life. I was t- talking with a, a friend recently, and, and he said, um, everybody needs their coping mechanism when we were talking about Christianity and religion. And th- this is not a coping mechanism. This is a this is a, a word that has existed in the, in the Jewish history and in the Jewish scriptures for hundreds of years that was built upon hundreds of years of scripture and the work of God prior to that. Indeed, it has to go back to Israel's defining moment when God delivered Israel from the Egyptians. Everything is based upon these, these actual works of God demonstrating his power in delivering people who have been oppressed and to bringing them into a, a way of prosperity. And so Israel had this as their vision. This is what the entire nation put their hope in. It wasn't everybody for him or herself, these wild dreams and fantasies and their own versions of spirituality. This is what they believed to be true, would be the future of the entire universe. When David, as the, as the ancestor to who would be this king, God tells him, you will have a son and your son will sit on the throne of the nations and his kingdom will be established forever. David steps back and says, who am I? And what is my name? And what is my family? That the entire future of the universe should be based upon me. That's what he said. And so when when Jesus said that he was the son of man, he was declaring that there is no greater ruler or king or president on the face of the planet then or any time ever in the future that was greater than him. That he was indeed this promised ruler that would completely eliminate all rival powers. Okay? So no United States and President Trump or any other president that's going to come next. No Vladimir Putin and any other president of Russia that's going to come next, okay? No tyrant, no Assad, no ruler, good or bad, is going to endure beyond Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. I mean, it is an eternal, it is an eternal statement that Jesus is making about himself, and an audacious one. And so, the audience would have heard him say that, and it would have blown their minds. It would have blown their minds. Here's how the, the high priest answered Jesus when Jesus declared that he was the Son of Man. Oops, I think I forgot to put one in there. There we go, I'll read it to you. The high priest, when Jesus is on trial. 
they keep throwing questions and accusations out at him, but Mark says this, he remained silent and made no answer to the accusations. And then again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And this is when the high priest basically loses his mind, rips his clothes, and says, what more evidence do we need? He is claiming to be God because they understood that the Christ, so the Christ is not Jesus' last name. The Christ means anointed one. An anointed one means that you are, you are given the kingship. You are given the kingdom. You are made king. You are made ruler. You are anointed. And so this goes all the way back to the first signs of a future kingdom in Israel. When, when, the, when, the, when the blessing that Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, who's also Israel, Jacob gives his blessing to his son Judah, and he says, the scepter will always be in your hand. Your brothers will bow down to you, and the nations will declare their obedience to. Genesis chapter 48 and 49. That is the earliest sign that we know that this promised child, the promised child that's going to destroy death, the promised child that's going to bring back the, the health and the vitality of the planet, the child that will destroy death and bring life back to humanity for eternity. They understood that promise. That's why Adam gave his wife a new name. You woman will now be known as Eve, the mother of all life. Because from you will come the source of all life to destroy the death that has come upon us. And the death at that time was shame and fear and guilt and separation from people, vulnerability, isolation, and finally, physical death. So all of these negative emotions and experiences that we have, this promised child would resolve. And he would be a king. And he would be a prophet and so he is the fulfillment of Israel's scriptures and hope. And that is who Jesus Christ is declaring that he will be. They understood, they understood that, this, that this son of Judah, that this prophet like Moses, that this son of David, that this prophet like Elijah would have to embody humanity and would have to embody divinity. They knew that the Christ would have to be other than human because humans failed in the garden. It would have to be God, but he would actually then be a son. And even, even, even Eve understood this when she gave birth to Cain. Most of our English translations insert the phrase after she gives birth to Cain. She says, I have gotten a man-child. Then most of our English translations say, with the help of the Lord. In fact, that's an additional phrase that's given because most translators can't, they can't possibly see how Eve would have understood what she actually said. What she actually says is, I have gotten a man-child, the Lord. I have she understood at that moment, the, at least the scriptures reveal to us that she understood. How she understood is, is, is a complicated question. And difficult to answer from the text. But the text does say that that's how Eve understood her promised child. He would be God, but also a child. 
And so this understanding that is reflected in the high priest's question of Jesus, are you the Christ, the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the world, the, the Son of the Blessed, the Son of God? And Jesus says, I am, and I am the Son of Man, wrapping up all of those identities. God comes to humanity in the life of Jesus Christ and, he's, and he teaches on this towards the end of the Gospel of Mark. He says, you know, how can the scribes teach that David calls his son Lord? David understood. David understood that his son, the promised son who would rule the nations forever, would ultimately be God as well. And so he is not only the king of the Jews, he is king of the nations, which is a threat to Israel's leadership at the time. And Pilate, it is recorded that Pilate understood that Jesus was delivered because of the jealousy of the Jewish leaders. So they knew that if this, <laughs> they could not fathom that this carpenter, that this carpenter from Bethlehem could possibly be their king. So he was a threat to Israel's leadership, and he was a threat to the Roman emperor, which is why they couldn't just let him go. The Romans couldn't just let Jesus go. A claim to the kingship was treason. And so the Jews and the Romans killed him. And so this is who Jesus said he was. This is who others said he was. And we see uh, in his death and resurrection an affirmation of Jesus' identity. Three of the Gospels, in fact, maybe four. I can't remember if the Gospel of John does this or not. But the Gospels record what is called the transfiguration. Transfiguration is when, and it's a strange scene. And, and if you're unfamiliar with the Old Testament, um, you can't make sense of it. But it's when Jesus is on the mountain, and Moses is with him, and Elijah is with him, and there's this radiant light and everybody's kind of dumbfounded and confused, and they don't know what to say. And so Moses, or so Peter is like, hey, let, let me put some tents up so everybody can stay for a while. And then the text says, because he didn't know what he was saying. He couldn't even understand what he was seeing. And so it's this strange event when, when Jesus and Moses and Elijah are on this mountaintop, and there's this radiant light. And again, this voice from heaven says, this is my son. Listen to him. Listen to him. And then it goes away. Well, in the scriptures, like I've already mentioned, the law, the five books of Moses, Moses declares that a prophet is going to come like me. He's going to change your heart. He's going to give you a new heart, a heart of flesh, because you have a heart of stone. You are a stubborn and resistant and stiff-necked people. There is going to come a prophet who's going to change all that. And at the end of the law, so if you can imagine the sections of Scripture, the law, the prophets, the writings, and the New Testament. So the law is like part one. And for a long time, that's all Israel had was part one. Five books of Moses called the law. At the end of the law, it says, a prophet has not yet come like Moses. And so they're reading their Bible hundreds of years after the events. And they're all still waiting for this prophet. Because that's how their part one ends. That's how their Bible ends. We're waiting for a prophet. So then the prophets come, and they write their books, and they're all collected. At the end of the book of the prophets, Malachi chapter 4, at the very last few verses, it says, a prophet like Elijah is going to come, and he is going to bring restoration. 
And so this was the, an additional part of their Bible. They have the law, a prophet like Moses will come. They have the prophets, a prophet like Elijah will come. And boom, now we get to the New Testament. We get to the New Testament. And we have this Jesus who comes. And he's on this mountain with Elijah and with Moses. And essentially that is God saying, because it is an event that God creates because he brings Moses and Elijah back from the dead. And there's this brilliant light and he's speaking from the heavens. And to those who are looking on, they would immediately have known if they understood their Bible, this is the prophet like Elijah. This is the prophet like Moses. And it is an important understanding to grasp because Jesus, halfway through the Gospel of Mark, once, once they realize who he is, it took a while for the disciples to really come to a conviction and a conclusion about this person, Jesus Christ. So they're with him all this time. Remember, he, he, he's walking on the water and they're in the storm on the lake and, and G, they have to ask, they're, they're, they're losing their minds, they have to ask Jesus to help them. And then he commands the waters and the wind and the waves to calm down. And they're like, who is this guy? Remember that? That's what the question they asked. They did not know yet. They couldn't have believed it yet. And so in chapter 8, Jesus asks, who do the people say that I am? Oh, some say you're Elijah, some say you're the prophet, some say this, some say that. We don't know. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asks Peter. And Peter by this time knew, oh, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. And so once they came to that conclusion, so as a reader, you were to come to that conclusion as well by that point, halfway through the book. And then he starts talking about his death. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're telling me that this guy from Daniel is going to die? That doesn't make any sense. Why? How, how can a king who's going to rule the nations for eternity be killed? That doesn't make any sense. And every time he said it, well, the first time he says he began to teach them that the Son of Man, right after, right after Peter's declaration that he was the Christ, all these things about Jesus' identity, he finally understood. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And he says this three times. And always there's confusion. Always, the second time, they did not understand what he meant. And they were afraid to ask him. Because the first time they asked, he said, get behind me, Satan. He called Peter Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Your ways are not the ways of God, but the ways of man. And it is in that moment where you begin to see the foolishness of humanity versus the wisdom of God. Because obviously, Jesus raises from the dead. Jesus raises from the dead. And it, 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 and it totally confuses the disciples. The disciples, after Jesus' death, they, in his arrest, they abandon him. The Jews mock him. 
Those who are crucified with Jesus mock him. So he has been declaring and living for three years, I am this great eternal ruler, Lord of the nations, and my kingdom will never be destroyed. And then he's, he's accused, he's arrested, he's tried, he is condemned, he is crucified, and he is killed. So, it is the full expression of abandonment. It is the full expression of humans' legal power, the legal power of the Jews, which was corrupt, the legal power of the Romans, which was corrupt. It is the full expression of humanity's political power. It is the full expression of humanity's military power. It is the full expression of humanity's economic power. As, as the, Jesus made constant reference to the, to, the, to the wealth and the status of the Jewish leaders as being central to their, to their position and their status and their hearts. And so the full expression of human power was on display in the killing of Jesus Christ. The full expression, it was the greatest empire on the face of the planet, and it was the people of God. And the full expression of their power, of what we would consider human power. And we can see our rulers, our economic rulers, our political rulers, our military rulers across the world in full bore expressing and glorying in and sitting upon the full expressions of human power. And we can see that they're motivated by it. We can see that it continually does not bring a human comfort, but brings suffering worldwide. And so then you have the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a bodily resurrection, unheard of. Okay, The Jews looked forward to a resurrection. At the end of all days, no other belief system on the planet to that point or prior to that had any concept of a human bodily resurrection as the eternal state of all things. All pagan religions had, you would go off into some sort of spirit mist. The Jews had a bodily resurrection, but it was after the Messiah came back and made everything whole. And so it is a completely new thing. It had never been conceived of. But in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, death was conquered in the full expression of human power was defeated. The greatest that man could come up with from an economic, political, military, legal perspective was put to shame. The greatest power of humanity God showed to be foolishness. And his foolishness, the foolishness of God, the foolishness of God because what kind of a God would propose an eternal world ruler in the life of a poor carpenter from Bethlehem? Nobody would conceive of it. Nobody would conceive of it. But in this is the power of God demonstrated. It is the full power of God. God entered into the worst that humanity could come up with and demonstrated his power over it. 
That is the full power of God against the foolishness of humanity. See, the resurrection, the resurrection is the proof of Jesus' identity as the Messiah, as the Son of Man, as the King of the Jews, as the Son of God, because his prophecy was fulfilled. I will be killed by the rulers of the Jews. I'll be handed over to the Romans, and I will be killed, but in three days I will rise again. They thought it was all nonsense, but it affirmed that he was indeed the prophet like Moses and Elijah. He was, his, his prophecy came true. He was who he said he was. He was and is the ruler of the nations of the world. And he sits at the right hand of God. And he is wielding his power. And it is a, it is a power that is different than what we expect. And the power that Jesus continues to manifest is the power of overcoming human suffering with the power of God in the gospel. The ability to endure. What is the, what is the prayer in Colossians chapter 1? I pray that you would experience the power of God so that you can endure with joy and gratitude. That's the power of God. Not being able to wipe away suffering. That's human power. And Jesus will eventually do that. But to discover the power of God personally is to get to the place where we can endure as Jesus did. See, he's a more full God than we can ever comprehend. Yes, he will have the military, political, and economic power. The scriptures are full of the teachings about Jesus and what he's going to establish in his kingdom, where all of these manifestations of power are going to be fully realized in him as king. Economics aren't going away. Politics and government are not going away. Law is not going away. All right? Learning is not going away. These things that we put our... Christ is going to manifest those things to the full expression. But to fully experience God until that moment in time is to experience God in the place of suffering. And so that is foolishness to us. It's foolishness to us. Another source of foolishness, I thought this was appropriate given the, the seasons that we're in in our, in our world. Some more of God's foolishness. Who were the witnesses of the empty tomb and the first witnesses of the resurrected Christ? Women. The first witnesses of the empty tomb and the resurrected Christ were women. And at the time, Jewish culture, Roman culture, probably cultures globally, women were not considered credible witnesses in legal matters or in testifying to anything of importance. It's not right, but that's the way it was. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a scheme or a ploy, a story to create a global religion, and you were trying to establish it as a credible religion, you would not have used women as the first witnesses to the empty tomb and the resurrected Messiah. You wouldn't have done it. But that's what's, that is what has happened, and that is what is described. And you have eyewitness testimony. If you're looking at this passage in Mark that, that Michelle read, 
Look at this. Who's going to roll away the stone for us? Now, you can imagine three women going to this graveyard, and there's this massive stone that they're thinking about. The text earlier says that Joseph of Arimathea was able to roll it in place by himself. The women knew that they couldn't do that on their own, or they were concerned about it. The insertion of that small phrase, like if you were creating the story, <laughs> you wouldn't have that personal thought in there. That's a pers- Mark is, is talking to either these women or the women or people that knew these women, because he's given this little personal anecdote. How are we going to roll away that stone? Because they wanted to go in and anoint Jesus' body. They wanted to perform some burial services because they hadn't had time the night before because it was the Sabbath. On, uh, the, the Sabbath was about ready to start on Friday night. And so you have, you have women that are providing the critical testimony for the identity of the person of Jesus the most important person who has ever lived and the establishment of a kingdom that is going to last forever. Once again, God turns the world on its head, a male-dominated world at the time, and says, I'm going to lift up women. Richard Bauckham says this, that women should have been given the message of the resurrection runs up against an assumption of male priority in God's dealings with his people. In these stories, women are given priority by God as recipients of revelation and thereby the role of mediators of that revelation to men. Is this not part of the eschatological, which means kind of like uh, the work of God to bring an end to all things? Is this not a part of the eschatological reversal of status in which God makes the last first and the first last so that no one may boast before God? Just another bit of what human kind would see as foolishness, but God sees as power. The power and wisdom of God are on full display in the gospel story. And it it runs against every human vision and source and manifestation of power that we could put up against him. Legal, political, military, economic, gender, sexism, It's the age-old story of humanity in the garden. Woman and man wanted sustenance and beauty and wisdom outside of God and in grasping for that to acquire power for themselves, to acquire wisdom for themselves, they cut off the source of those things. They cut off God, the creator of all those things. True power had to demonstrate its ability to conquer death, which is humanity's greatest enemy. It's humanity's greatest weapon. Death is humanity's enemy, and it's humanity's weapon. I'm watching the, uh, anybody else watching the Frankenstein Chronicles right now on Netflix? Nobody, probably not. It's a really strange show. <laughs> but you know what? It's the story of humanity's efforts, humanity's efforts to conquer death. And in its efforts to conquer death, only more suffering comes. So many of our stories are like this. The power that we need is a different power. It is a different power. We need the power of God. 
And the power of God is demonstrating, is demonstrated, excuse me, on this earth, while we are still in the midst of humanity, while we are still in possession of our fleshly bodies, while we are still inhabiting a corrupt planet, the manifestation of Jesus' power, of the power of God, of creation power, of resurrection power, is not going to be found in completely eliminating suffering from our lives through whatever means. The power of God is going to be demonstrated in our ability to endure the suffering that we are experiencing with joy and gratitude because of the fullness that God brings to us through his Holy Spirit that indwells those who believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God Jesus Christ is the full manifestation of the power of God. And to experience the fullness of God, the fullness of God, which is the fullness of happiness, the fullness of a sense of confidence, the fullness of a free conscience, the fullness of freedom and joy and contentment does not come with the elimination of suffering. It comes with the presence of God who lives in us through his Holy Spirit which is the next part of the story from the book of Acts. That is the power of God for us now. And our, and our pursuits of the power that we need from, from law or from knowledge or from money, all these things are good in their place, but they cannot replace the power of God. They cannot replace the power of God. Wesley Hill in his recent article in Christianity Today, he says this, every Sunday, every Easter Sunday from here on out, we can all look up and remember the most famous April Fool's joke of all time, that God was there at the place of the skull, in the blood and the tears of broken humanity, reconciling the world to, our, to himself. And that is how, that is, and that is, oh my goodness, did I, and that is, <laughs> and that is he is now. I think that's not right. I completely messed up the end. That is how he is now to be found in our tears too. That is where the power of God is found. It doesn't seem like it. It doesn't feel like it. It's not a, it's not a, a vision that we are naturally compelled to pursue. But it is the truth, because Jesus rose from the dead. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for the witness of Jesus Christ. Thank you that he indeed was the Son of God, bringing a completely different power, because the powers of the world always come up short. And we all know that. We are never satisfied. And so God, we pray that you would help us to set aside the temptations of the powers of the world and to pursue the power of God that will be eventually fully revealed when Christ returns. Until then, may we experience his power to give us strength and joy and gratitude in the midst of suffering. And help us, God, then, to enter into the suffering of others by serving Christ and other people and therefore becoming vessels of his power to this world. In your son's name we pray, amen.